This is Can I Laugh on Your Shoulder? Hey, welcome to Can I Laugh on Your Shoulder? I'm Molly Stillman, and this is a podcast where I sit down with a different guest each week, and we have raw, funny, often brutally honest conversations about the things that matter most, faith, business, life, and everything in between, where we each learn how to be good stewards of the things we've been entrusted with, even our stories, and how we can use those things to serve others and leave our families, our friendships, and our communities a little better than we found them. I want to create a space where people are unafraid to be themselves and unafraid to ask the questions the rest of us are thinking. My goal is to make you laugh, cry, and laugh till you cry. My guests, yes, that's plural, guests this week are Dr. Ed Gravely and Dr. Pete Link. Dr. Gravely serves as professor of Christian studies at Charleston Southern University and occupies the Ott Chair of Theology there. He had been teaching Koine Greek and New Testament at the university and graduate level since 2002, and the focus of his research and writing is in the field of textual criticism. Gravely serves as an elder at his church in the Charleston area, and Dr. Link serves as a professor of Christian studies at also at Charleston Southern. He has taught biblical Hebrew, Old Testament, and hermeneutics at undergraduate and graduate level since 2012. His research and writing focus is on the Pentateuch's composition. He serves as the group's pastor at his church in the area as well. Dr. Gravely and Dr. Link wrote a book called Bible 101 from Genesis and Psalms to the Gospels and Revelation, your guide to the Old and New Testaments. This book is a comprehensive crash course in the Bible written in an accessible and understandable way for every reader. With approachable language, Bible 101 offers a look into the stories, traditions, and doctrines that make the Bible so memorable and important from the Old and New Testament. I am not going to lie. I was a little intimidated to interview Dr. Gravely and Dr. Link, or as I should just call them, Ed and Pete. And in the end, we had the best time. I kind of nerded out with them a little bit, but I'm telling you, this conversation is so much fun. And who thought we could have so much fun while just talking all about theology and scripture? I asked some questions that probably a lot of you have had, like, can we trust the Bible? Is it a reliable book? Is it a, a book that is worth reading? We talk all about kind of the breakdown of the scriptures. We talk about how to get started with studying and we cover it all. It was so much fun. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. So without further ado, on to my chat with Ed and Pete. Well, I am so pumped to have Dr. Ed Gravely and Dr. Peter Link here on the show today. Um, do I need to call you guys like Do Dr. Link and Dr. Gravely, or can I just call you Peter and Ed? Uh, Ed is fine. <laughs> Ed, is, uh, yeah, you can call him Ed. You can call me Pete or Peter. Pete, I like uh, it. Either is fine. I like it. Yeah. Uh, well, welcome to the show. I'm so excited that you guys are here. Thank you for being here. I know you're in in the midst of exam week as professors. So, uh, like we said before recording, if angry students come in your office, um, I'll, I'll allow it. Uh, but thank you for taking time out of your busy day, uh, to, to be here. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. It's a blessing. All right. So let's dive in right away. Cause there's so much I want to talk about. Um, but let's have what I, you know, and this is fitting because I kid you not, you know, y'all are going to be like episode. I don't even know. Like we're, we're in the almost three fifties now. So out of 350 episodes, I do this every single episode. I have my guests give the, you know, the Peter 101 or the Ed 101 and your book is Bible 101. So it is very oh, fitting. Like we didn't even plan that. 
So, uh, Pete, I'm going to have you start first. Give us the Pete 101. So who you are, what you do, and how you got to where you are today. Well, that's a great story. Um, I, I'll, I'll compress it for you, though. Um, I'm the Old Testament professor here at Charleston Southern University. My wife, Beck, and I have been married about 20 years. Uh, in fact, in uh, next month, we'll have our 20th anniversary. Awesome. Congratulations. Uh, have, we have... Yeah, yeah, it's it's a great thing. We have five children, uh, the oldest of whom is a college freshman, the youngest of whom is a seven-year-old who believes she's a college freshman. Understandable. Uh, and they're great kids, and it's a busy, chaotic house. In addition to that, uh, being a professor, I'm a pastor. Actually, I'm a pastor with Ed. We're both uh, groups pastors at a church called Crossroads Community Church, and mostly the church is happy with us most days, I think. And mostly the students are happy with us most days. But uh, it's interesting. My background is I was I was a I had my undergraduate degree in radio, TV, film, and uh, I was a failed screenwriter. And then out of that uh, uh, chaos, and it was chaos. Uh, and out of that chaos, I ended up ultimately giving my life to the Lord uh, at the age of 31. And then three years later, I ended up in seminary. Realized I didn't really know my Bible, and so I just started pouring into it. Was able to stud- study under a really great guy. Um, and all of his colleagues. And, and so ultimately, after countless years of study, about 11 years ago, uh, Becky and I came down to Charleston Southern and we just have a blast. The students are awesome and they put up with me. So it's a good thing. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right, Ed, you're up. Ed 101. Sure. My name is uh, Ed Gravely. I am married to Angela and it, our anniversary will be 28 years uh, this June. Look at you. Uh, we have two children. Yeah, thank you. We have two children, a 16-year-old, almost 17-year-old son who is about to be a high school senior next year and an 18-year-old daughter who is about to be a college freshman next year. In fact, she's headed up your way. She's going to be at the college at Southeastern in Wake Forest next oh, year. Oh, that's so, awesome. Yeah, we're, we're excited about that. Uh, I am the New Testament specialist here, and we've been here. We moved here in January of 2016 from Charlotte, and we're in the Raleigh-Durham area for about 15 years before that. Oh, I was wow. a professor at Southeastern Seminary. and Yeah. And yeah. Southeastern's Extension Center in Charlotte, and then, uh, and then yeah, came here to be the New Testament specialist. And I, I love it here. I love our students. We have a a wide range of students uh, from a wide variety of backgrounds. And I think that's pretty cool. And uh, so I get to teach uh-huh. students and I also get to do a little bit of research and writing and textual criticism, which is kind of my specialty. So yeah, it's good. Good place to be. Love the weather. Uh, there's nothing yeah. quite like uh, putting Christmas lights in palm trees. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. While you're wearing shorts and a tank top. <laughs> yeah, I love Charleston. Uh, and I realize that probably like every woman in their uh, 30s to 40s probably says that. Really, most women, I don't actually know a woman that doesn't say that, but I think especially in their 30s and 40s, it's like Charleston is is the peak. All right. Well, I am so excited about this. So you guys are the authors of uh, a book that released, uh, what was it? When did it release? Last couple months? January. January. Early January. In January. Yeah. yeah called, first week of January. Yeah. So it's called Bible 101, A Crash course in scripture. And uh, I think it is obviously very fitting that one of you is an Old Testament scholar. One of you is a New Testament scholar and professor. You guys really, uh, <laughs> you just, the, the Lord brought you together for one, you know, <laughs> comprehensive um, brain. Um, I think this is so needed and so important, especially in the area of biblical literacy, but helping to really like, I mean, like what the book says is Bible 101 says help people get a basic understanding of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And obviously there's a lot that I want to unpack with that, but I want to hear from you guys. What was the thing that really 
made you, because there are a ton of Bible resources out there. There are a ton of commentaries. There are a ton of kind of, you know, overview type books. Um, I have a lot of them and I love the format of yours. So I'm curious, like for you guys to share, what was it that wanted, that made you want to write this book at this time? And um, because obviously this takes research and time and effort and you guys have families and a church and your professors and busy lives. So what was, why were you called to do this particular book at this time? Well, because the publisher asked us. Uh, <laughs> You're like, well. It, it's kind of, yeah, true, true story. It's amazing. I, mean, I love it. It's it's uh it's interesting. I'm walking down the hallway one day, and our boss, our, our dean, uh, Ben Phillips, just got an email from a lady who had been an agent on a uh, project that uh, he had worked from years ago. He couldn't work on this project, and he he turned to me and he said, "What do you think about this thing?" And I looked at it, and I saw Old Testament, New Testament, and then I looked down the hallway and uh, wanted to see if my my colleague Ed Gravely was there. And I said, if you get Ed to do it with me, I'll do it. And uh, and then we just kind of jumped at it. We gave them some sample materials. Uh, they were reasonably happy with that, I think. And then we spent, what was it, what did we say this morning, Ed, about six to eight weeks of just uh, cranking out the, the first draft, which said, how could you write it so quickly? Because what we were writing was what we'd been teaching for mm-hmm. about a decade. Right. Uh, leading into this, so we—I mean, we were—we were pouring out of the overflow, one might say, and uh, but it was fun. It, it, the format—I'm glad that you love the format because really the publisher deserves the credit for that. And what uh, our challenge was: hey, how can we keep this thing uh, short, to the point, brief, and make sure that we get the make the main thing the main thing? And so, through multiple drafts after that initial first draft, it was just keep going at it, and and can we make this better? Can we make this more clear? Uh, sending it to friends to say, hey, does this make sense to you? Yeah. Because <laughs> it's amazing when you start cutting one thing out, there's all these dominoes that fall uh, fall out later. And you just have to think through that. And hopefully we've, we've made uh, the right decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're, again, we were, we were asked by the publisher to do it. It sort of fell out of our, fell out of the sky into our laps. Yeah. But <laughs> the, the kinds of questions that we worked through and the kinds of material that we dealt with as we were writing this was a part of an ongoing conversation that all of our faculty here have, which is it's the classic, which textbook am I going to use for my class? Which textbook is most appropriate for my students and their their reading level and their background? And so, and we've always, every professor always toys with, I should just write my own textbook. Um, And you never (laughs) actually have the time to write your own textbook until all of a sudden it's like, hey, we need 60,000 words in six weeks. And then suddenly you find the time to write your own textbook. So suddenly, there it is. um, That was, that was really how we, um, we approached it. Obviously, the publisher had some things that they wanted, they, the 60 chapters and with the uh, sidebars and things. And we were happy to do that. But really, our eye was towards, I'm going to use this in my classroom with all of my students in my surveys. And I'm going to use this with my congregation at my church and with the people that we're teaching mm-hmm. and discipling. And so that, that for me, at least, that helped me sort of focus when it came time to this chapter is 300 words over, please chop it. That was the how I made the decisions of what to cut and what right. to keep. And so that was sort of the that work process. Okay. I love that. Yeah, keep going. Uh, Pete, Pete, what were you going to say? No, no, I was just going to say that the, the great thing, though, is it's is its impact uh, on uh, church members. We're in charge of a small group ministry at our church and, and uh, making sure that those leaders always have a big picture of what's going on in the scriptures as they go into a new part of the scriptures. Uh, this is part of that recipe. It's intentionally designed to be part of helping somebody step into the biblical world, part because we certainly believe that biblical literacy or more properly biblical illiteracy Mm -hmm. is especially bad right now. Now, I'm not a historian. It may have been uh, worse at other times in our recent history, but it certainly feels worse uh, in my lifetime. 
Uh, and, and to me, that's very special because I did not start reading the Bible until I was 31. Mm. Um, so I just, uh, for me, I can remember how intimidating the, the concept of the scriptures were. And, and so uh, just the idea of going into it. And so I just began reading. And, and ironically, you know, I'm an Old Testament professor, but I, I, I tell my students, I said, when I first started reading the Bible, I just read the New Testament a few times. And then yeah. I finally forced myself uh, to go through it. And I tried to read it and it made, none of it made sense to me. So I remember that feeling. But what, what, a, what makes this meaningful, what makes this book meaningful, if it draws people into the book, and not only do they read once, but they keep on reading. Yeah. So we don't really always try to, uh, you, you can't give everybody sufficient answers, no matter how book, how big your biblical commentary, biblical resources. Right. What you're trying to do is to move people from the questions they've had to better and better questions. And so on some level, I hope we've done that. Um, I think there's a, there's a lot of clarity to it. And I always go over and look at what Ed does and I say, hey, man, that's really good, Ed. Uh, <laughs> you know, maybe the first half of the book should be a little bit more like that. So, yeah, you know how it goes. I... Well, I really appreciate you saying that. And I agree that uh, and I this is somebody who and I feel like for people who've listened to my show for a long time, they're like, we know. But for, for context of this conversation, I didn't grow up a Christian. And so I didn't become, you know, believer till I was 25. And um, and I, I, I feel like I say this a lot on this show because um, it's it's an important like piece of context for people right. to have. You know, but when I I became a, a believer and I I started to read it, but a lot of it was just piecemealing and just kind of uh-huh. finding my way and figuring out you know what things meant and you know so that was in the fall of 2010. Um, but the first time I ever set out to read through, because the idea of reading through the Bible cover to cover was incredibly overwhelming to me. And I just thought there's no way that I would right. ever be able to do that. And so the first year I did it was in 2018 and I did it yeah. chronologically and it changed everything for me. And I've done it every year since then. And I will oh, do it God. every year from now until I die. Um, And I truly, and I get so excited about it, but I will say that is the year that like a hunger for God's word and a hunger for scripture just was birthed in me in a way that like I can't explain. And it was like this, it just kind of became this cycle of the more I read, the more I wanted to know, and the more I wanted to like really uncover things. And I mean, I'd done Bible studies. I, um, I do Bible study fellowship and have been doing that for, you know, almost 10 years. Um, but it was the first time that I'd really been able to grasp the the biblical narrative as a whole and the importance of the biblical narrative as a whole. And, so I, I'd love for you to speak to this because this is something I'm really passionate about. And I figure as professors of Old and New Testament that you are passionate about <laughs> as well. But um, and I think, Pete, you might be able to speak to this even a little bit more. But I'd be, I'd be interested in your your perspective is for a lot of Christians. And I have this conversation with a lot of people in my church and in my community and in my you know friendships and things like that, where they just say, well, oh, well, the Bible is just like at this outdated book. And like, we don't really need the Old Testament because, you know, we have the new covenant and things like that. But when it's like, no, 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 no. So how do you begin to have that conversation and begin to, because you don't want to just be like, oh, we need a you know comprehensive biblical literacy. Like that's going to overwhelm people. So instead, how do you have the conversation of, no, 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 the Bible is actually living and active and it is, it is as relevant today as it ever has been. And we need both the Old and New Testament. And in order to understand the New Testament, we need the Old Testament. And in order to really appreciate the New Testament, we need the Old Testament. Um, so I'd love for you to speak to that because I think that's that's such an important piece of this. 
starting in the New Testament, it's it's sort of inescapable. When you look at, if you do it with a read with a critical eye, you realize that at almost every turn, in almost every chapter, the author of the New Testament is reacting to, referencing, quoting, or assuming yep. something from the Old Testament. Right. And it's uh as 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 Pete always says, it and it's probably the Torah. If you have to guess, if it's not Isaiah, then it's the Torah. Yeah, if it's not Isaiah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so it's to yeah, the the, the the amount of Old Testament that is assumed by the New Testament writers is not only substantial, but the how much the the New Testament authors are are engaging in an ongoing conversation. Uh, and in order to read them well and understand them, you have to you can't have missed the first two thirds of the conversation. Right. I, I guess is the way I would put that. <laughs> right. um, now, it is true that depending on where you are in the New Testament, you get the crib notes sometimes. Uh, you know, I, I often tell my students that in many ways, Paul is sort of the spark notes for the Old Testament simply because. <laughs> yeah. what, now, just what Paul, just so you know, you dated yourself, Pastor Ed there. Oh, I know spark notes. notes. I, is that not a thing? I guess they're just asking. I, Chad I don't GPT know what the, the kids today. I don't know what word they use for that, but it's got to be something, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so because what, you know, Paul is in many ways explaining not only the Old Testament, but the teaching of Jesus mm -hmm. to the Gentiles. Right. right. Um, and so he is right. playing. He's he's giving them the training wheels in some in some ways, and which is why there's just such an impulse among Christians to if they don't start in the Gospels when they have a, a question or a problem, they start in Paul's letters because mm -hmm. they seem the most accessible. And that's because he's. Again, he's sort of helping us along, but um, all throughout right. uh, Jesus' ministry, uh, you know, the, the the Old Testament is his Bible. And as uh, a, a, fe a fellow former colleague of mine and uh, and Pete's former uh, mentor used to always say, Doctor uh, Selhammer used to always say, you know, there was a there was a Christian church for years, decades before there was a New Testament, and so mm -hmm. and the Old Testament was the Bible of that first generation of Christians, right. and so. It's it's so yeah it, it formulates so much of the New Testament thinking that it's inescapable in that in that so sense. So good, yeah, yeah. And that quote was uh, the New Testament Church was the New Testament Church without the New Testament, mm. which means that the church you see described in the New Testament was all about the New Covenant because they already had a book about it, right? And that's from John Selhammer. He was he was uh, you know methodologically my 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 mentor in many many ways, and of course then he went to go to another seminary towards the uh, end of my time there. But yeah, it, it's a great question. And in fact, I do remember, as I, I told you, being terrified of reading the Old Testament because it seems so foreign. It seems so different. It seems so far away. And the New Testament, let's be honest, is sometimes a little bit more direct. Yeah. Um, and and so when I, uh, when I come to the Old Testament, I'm teaching people the Old Testament, and, and I try to get them to get at least this idea down at the beginning. Don't confuse a book's setting with its message. Mm. The book's setting is where it takes place. And yes, the Old Testament is a book where the setting is the Old Covenant. But if you read the Torah carefully, now what is the Torah? It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's one book. And in that book, you see life under the Old Covenant. And you see that the law codes never solve the book's fundamental problem, that of the human heart and this issue of man's death and God's presence. God is where the tree of life is. We've got to get back to him. But if we approach him wrongly, we die. Mm. So then that sets up really a, a search as you read the Torah. Hey, where does hope lie? Because the book is not pessimistic about God. It's pessimistic about Israel and humanity. And it's, it, it's not just Israel, right? But the way that God relates to Israel and the Torah becomes the pattern for how God relates to all nations. And what we see is even though Moses could not bring Israel on the mountain, 
And then the law codes came as a result of that to hold them into place until somebody could come who could do that. We have this moment in Genesis 22 where Abraham takes Isaac on the mountain. And his heart is a, the, the test of Genesis 22 ultimately is his heart, the, the son whom you love. And for those who don't know, in Genesis 22, Mount Moriah, uh, God tests Abraham. Uh, just as Sinai is a test later at, at Mount Moriah, we have this test. And he says, take your son, your, your only one, the one whom you love, Isaac. And what we see is you have a man who loved God and feared God and took the most precious part of the creation, his only son. The other had been sent away. And he was willing to... Uh, take him on the mountain to face death in God's presence. And what happened? What was supposed to be a moment of death became a moment of life. And that's the way that the book begins. If you read it carefully, if you look, uh, if you look across, that Moses is offering a hope that's in the future. Right. And it's a man uh, that ultimately we, we give him lots of titles. The seed of the woman, that's Genesis 3. Right. The seed of Abraham, Isaac. We also get him called the king from the tribe of Judah, who will look just like Joseph, only better. And he's also called the prophet like Moses. So when you read that, you have to teach people to notice patterns, right? Right. Um, because this is not where you just take one verse and, and pull it out. But but Christian reading is made most powerful, most biblical, most gospel oriented when we notice the patterns that the biblical authors put there. Yeah. And what's amazing is if you see those patterns within the Torah, you recognize that the whole Bible keeps talk, talking about the Torah. And as as and as uh, as Ed said. When you, um, you know, you do get the kind of crib notes, you kind of get the answers a lot of times for, for where things end in the New Testament. And as believers, you don't need to be ashamed about that at all. It's like, oh, I, I know how to read the, the Old Testament. That's true. But what I try to encourage people is, hey, if you read in the, the Old Testament in a, in a big picture sense, you're going to see those patterns. You're going to see what was already there. It's not bad to have the perfect tour guides lead you. Not at all kind of like it even. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I gotta be certain that you're familiar with it, but, um, the Jesus storybook Bible, you know, the Jesus story. Jesus. Yeah. Which, which one is that one? The Jesus storybook the, um, by, um, uh, Sally. What is, I'm co- totally completely breaking. That's all right. You're, <laughs> what's her name? Yeah, no, oh we, we, we read that to our kids. Yes. In fact, I think sometimes I I still read that to my kids and they're yes. like older teenagers. Yes. So and and my my husband and I talk about this all the time that even my husband. So, you know, for the context, I, you know, I didn't grow up in the church. My husband, on the other hand, you know, grew up in a, a Christian home where he missed, you know, like five Sundays of church ever in his life. And he was in Sunday in church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, like all the things, youth group, all the things. Right. Right. And he's, he's even said how it wasn't really till we had kids and he was reading, you know, the, the Jesus storybook Bible to his kids where he was seeing threads for the very first time of like, Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, that's exactly like, cause the whole, the subtitle of the Jesus storybook Bible, which, you know, is this quote unquote, like kids story Bible, but it's every story whispers his name from Genesis to revelation. And it's this notion that so many times, like we would see ourselves as the hero in these stories when it's like, no, 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 no. Like we are, (laughs) you know, that no, we are not David. Like we are, we are Goliath. Like, you know, know, Jesus is David, Uh, you know, our sin is Goliath, you know, things like that but it's just like the right, um right. the 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 grand narrative we would we would see um uh as as it it's all pointing to Jesus and um yeah so i think that that's i love the way that you you kind of paint that picture of that you cannot have one without the other 
And I was actually telling my husband this because uh, so I mentioned that I do Bible study fellowship, which uh, I love and just could talk about all day long of how amazing it is. Um, but, you know, I've I've done it since. Uh, so Revelation was my very first year, which, uh, you know, if people don't aren't familiar, oh, wow. it's, like, it's a yeah, that's real a, that's a starting point. That for was you. a starting point. OK, so I started in Revelation. So I was like, well, if I guess <laughs> if I can do Revelation, I can do just any, you know, just about anything else. But, you know, for people that aren't familiar with it, like it's a really intense, you know, deep Bible study where you have, uh, you know, you're reading the scripture and you're answering questions and you're in discussion and you're reading biblical commentary and you're listening to lectures about about it and stuff. Um, you know, and so I've done so that was nine years ago and I've done almost all of their studies since then. But then this year's study, I was a brand new study and I was, to be totally honest, I was really nervous about it. Um, so it's called People of the Promise Kingdom Divided. So it basically goes from mm-hmm. Solomon, from the division of the mm-hmm. kingdoms into uh, Israel and Judah through Habakkuk. And so you have right. all the minor prophets in there of Jonah and Amos and, and Isaiah and uh, Jeremiah and Lamentations, mm-hmm. all of that. And it's a so it's a one, it's a really large chunk of scripture and and time. But two, it was an area of the Bible that I was honestly, even after having read through the Bible, you know, five years now, and it's an area of the Bible I just didn't understand. I didn't really a lot of it didn't make sense. To me, it's a lot of some pretty dark. bald guys calling on bears to to kill boys. You know yeah, the like kind of things that happen every day. It's a lot, you know, yeah. floating axe heads. You gotta, you gotta just just a lot. There's just yeah. like what is happening. Um, you know, and it's a it's it can be dark at times and hard to Very. read. And um, so it was an area of scripture that I just was really intimidated by. And but I just was like, all right, Lord, like I'm believing that I'm gonna, you know. We're going to make it through. If I can make it through this, I can do it through anything. Right. And I was saying that out of all of the studies we've done, that this is the one that I will say I now understand the Bible as a whole better mm. than if I had done any other study. I've done Matthew. I've done Revelation. I've done Genesis. I've you know I've done all these. But this, because this pivotal point in Scripture where it really all comes to a head. I mean, with the exile to Babylon and all of it, it's just the consequence of hundreds of years of just, you know, rebellion and idolatry and all this stuff where you're just right. like, wow, this is okay. We're, we're doing that again. Okay. More idolatry. All right. More child sacrifice. All right. Cool. This is great. Um, <laughs> where it just hits this, this, you know, this pow- is this powder keg almost, but right. then you really see and you understand the the patience of God, the nature of God, God's character, uh-huh. his who he is in the context of the biblical scriptures. And 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 I never would have ever thought that I would really like fully grasp the Bible as a whole if it were, you know, without this this part. And so I think it speaks to right. what we were saying is just like you cannot have one without the other because now I understand all those quotes that Jesus is always referring to in Isaiah. I'm like, oh, I know what he's referring to now. Like that, oh, it all makes sense. And the beauty too of God showing us, um, like we just studied Lamentations last week and I'm like, oh, Mm -hmm. so I can like whine to God. Like I, that's, that's all <laughs> Lamentations is, is just Jeremiah. Just... And that is a scholarly term. Right. Uh, whining, that's right. Okay. I just yes. want to make sure that we're on record saying yeah, that. Yeah. It's, it's in um, Second Hesitations um, 24-7 um, <laughs> is the book. That's it. 
But, you know, so anyway, I say all of that to say is it, this really is it helps you understand. And so um, to bring it all back to where we were at the beginning is by having a resource like this, like the Bible 101 and and being able to thread those or I guess weave those threads is what I should say um, is right. so important because we aren't doing that. And and churches aren't doing that the way they should be is a kind of a reality. Yeah. And one of the tough choices we faced, and um, I kind of held my ground on this one, was in what order to teach the Old Testament. It's, it's interesting. You mentioned chronological order. I have a lot of friends who do that. Most just read it in the order we have in our English Bibles. I always have taught the Old Testament in what we call the three-part Hebrew order, and there's multiple versions of the three-part Hebrew order, but the basic pattern is the same, which is Torah, prophets, and writings. Mm -hmm. And so it would be interesting, and one of the reasons I do that is for the very kinds of relationships you just talked about, how you can begin to see uh, the the patterns of of God's mercy in particular a little bit uh, more clearly. Uh, But since you were somebody who read, uh, was was that something that was helpful to you to see it in this different order? Uh, did it yes. did it spur you to questions? Where what was your what was your take on? It? I'm going to interview you on this. Well, one. that's I mean, that's a great question. I'm a little I'm a little nervous. I'm on the spot. Um, well, I would say yes, it was really helpful because I've you know I've now read through the Bible in in two ways. Um, I read chronologically, and then I did one year where I read. Old Testament, no test, New Testament, just straight through. And I'll be honest, I mm-hmm. didn't love it that way. I didn't, I just didn't, right. my brain didn't wrap. It didn't, it didn't sink the way I probably would have otherwise. Right. Um, so what I've, I've preferred chronologically because that has been the most helpful for me, but I really thought this was so interesting in the way that you, you guys kind of break it down. And I love, what was the, the it's three what? Say it again. So it's a three-part Hebrew order. Hebrew, three so Hebrew if you go order. to a, a synagogue, for example, they're not going to call it the Old Testament. I hate right. to tell you. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously. Yeah, they're yeah. they're going to have a term called the Tanakh. Yeah. Um, and uh, the first part of it is the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Right. And then the middle part is the prophets, which is very similar to what we have at the beginning. And then things begin to change. And it begins with Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Right. And they call that the former prophets. And that's the story of Israel's time in the land. Now, what, what I didn't say is Ruth, and what I didn't say is Chronicles. Those are going to be in the third part of the Old Testament, the writings, when we get there. But it's really interesting because uh, if you watch carefully, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings are written together, and they echo Deuteronomy very clearly. Yeah. And the key chapter, I always jokingly say, you know, when, you, when you're reading Kings, the most important part of Kings is Second Samuel chapter 7. And uh, which isn't in Kings, of course, but but all of Kings is sitting there helping you look for this promised son of David you saw in Second Samuel chapter seven. And then once you get to Kings and you have Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, you begin with Israel out of the land. You end with Israel in exile out of the land at the end right. of that time. And then Isaiah picks it up. Right. And uh, then Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And then you have the 12 minor prophets. And notice I didn't say uh, Daniel there. Daniel's going to be in the writings. And so uh, you put that together and you have uh, uh, basically from Joshua to Malachi in that in that order wrestling with how do we wait for this person who's coming and the time when God comes upon earth when he comes, which Moses is called the end of the days or the last days. And really Malachi set you up for that. And you saw Joshua, man, you it just you're reading. You're like, Joshua's going to be this guy, right? He's a prophet. He's a priest. He's a king. He's told to meditate upon the Torah day and night. And of course, things don't work out so well, so much so that they lose the book 
yeah. uh, in, in King somewhere. But then you get to the writings, the third part of the Old Testament. And here's where you have multiple orders showing up all over the place. But the order that I presented in, I think, is most likely to be the original. But there's plenty of debate on that. I could find 10 scholars who would yeah. uh, rebu rebuke it greatly. But what's great is you start with Psalms. And the, the very kind, the very thing that Joshua was commanded at the beginning of the prophets, meditate upon the Torah day and night, the person described in Psalm 1 and 2 actually does what Joshua's commanded. And he is the one who uh, is called the son of David. And then from that, you get all those uh, wisdom books. It doesn't mean the genre wisdom. They mean they're having a discussion about what is divine wisdom and what is human wisdom. Right. And actually those books that are hard to interpret, like Song of Songs, if you read it that way, you've got those other wisdom books right there kind of helping you fill in the gaps. Like the book of Proverbs really helps you read Song of Songs. And then you get these narratives of exile, Esther and Daniel. Then you get these narratives of, um, of Israel's return back to the land of Canaan that didn't work out in Ezra and Nehemiah. And then the last word is the book of Chronicles, Yeah, which is like, you, you remember those Staples ads where you, you, you press the help button and it yeah. helps you figure things out. <laughs> that was easy. That's, that's what, that's what Chronicles is. And because yeah. it's, it's doing for the whole Old Testament, what Deuteronomy did for the Torah. Mm. And it ends ironically with a Gentile king, not an Israelite king, calling for the Messiah to come up and says, let him go up. And then it just ends. And that's why. And, it's and then like, it just wait, ends. What? And you're like, <laughs> where's Matthew 1-1? Yeah. There it is. And then it goes up. And you're like, is that an right. incomplete sentence? What happened there? Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, so I, I challenge you. If you look at Ezra 1 and the ending of Second Chronicles, they both have Cyrus's decree. And at the, at the beginning of Ezra, you get the long version of the decree. So when he says, let him go up in Ezra, it's talking about every survivor in verse 4 meaning lots of people go up, the people of God coming back without the Messiah. But when the people of God don't have the Messiah, they're like the people of God we've been reading about. Mm. It doesn't turn out pretty. Right. But the author of Chronicles is so persuaded that the Messiah is right around the corner because he's been thinking about Daniel and all that stuff. Right. He just chops off the end of that decree so that the last thing Cyrus says is let him go up. And now you have one of the nations uh, being God's messenger, proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. Man. So oh, it's a great so lead good. into uh, Matthew. So good. So good. All right. What did you, what do you want to add there, Ed? Oh, I was just going to say these themes. Well, first of all, I'm a little jealous because we don't get to have any of these, those kinds of debates in the New Testament because <laughs> the, the New Testament was put together so quickly and the, uh, the manuscript evidence is so early. Um, the groupings mm -hmm. that we have, though, there's some difference in arrangements, the groupings that we have in the New Testament of gospels all together and in the book of Acts and then the general letters and then Paul's letters or vice versa with Revelation on the end. Um, it just sort of seems to have accumulated that way. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but those themes uh, that uh, Dr. Link is talking about, you, you see them all over the New Testament. And if you, right. for, for example, um, when you look at the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are the gospels. We call them synoptic because they're the ones that they share a great deal of material in common. Right. And um, when you look at the ordering of the early ministry of Jesus um, and the way the, the, from the birth through the calling of the first disciples and the first narratives are told, Matthew, when you look at Matthew, you, you're left with questions like, why is he, why does he arrange some things this way? Why does he hurry through some things? Why does he leave some things out? It's because Matthew is, um, he's telling the story of Jesus in a way that is supposed to make you think about the story of Israel. Mm -hmm. And yep, so, sure. you know, when you see you know, Jesus in the early, when you see Israel, you know, in darkness and in slavery in Egypt, and then you see all these, the imagery of darkness and the birth narratives of Jesus. And then uh, they flee from Herod and they go to Egypt. 
And then how does e- how does Israel in the Old Testament escape their slavery from Egypt? They go through the Red Sea into the water. The author of Hebrews calls that a baptism. And then the next thing you see of Jesus is he's being baptized. And then Israel goes out of the Red Sea and they go into the wilderness and they're there for 40 years. And Jesus goes in Matthew, he goes out of the that waters of baptism and goes into the Old Testament for 40 days. And then at the end of Israel's wilderness wandering, they go up the mountain. And then at the end of the 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus goes up the mountain and preaches the Sermon on the Mount and says, you have heard it said. And he's quoting Moses from Deuteronomy, but I say to you. And so even structurally, the gospel writers and the writers of the epistles are imitating uh, and connecting us to that Old Testament story. Um, The author of Peter in first Peter, which I, I do think is Peter, um, refers to, he constantly refers to these Gentile Christians living in um, Western Turkey um, as through all, based on all of the terms that Israel is called in the Old Testament. He calls them a royal priesthood and a chosen nation and a people after God's name. And they're exiles and strangers. And when he greets them at the end of the letter, he says, those who are from Babylon greet you because he wants, when, when, when you're a Christian and you're living in difficult times in the Roman Empire in yeah. the first century or in America in the 21st century, and you think, how should I how should I live in this world? How should I think about my life? Well, for Peter, the starting place is think about your life the way Israel was supposed to think about their lives while they were captive in Babylon. Mm. And, and that will give you clarity on the things you're supposed to hold on to very tightly and the things you're really supposed to let go and give you perspective for living in this world because you're actually, you're just passing through. You're not going to be here very long. Right. And this is not your home. And so you don't get bogged down in things like politics because no matter who wins the next election, it's still going to be a Babylonian. And this is not your place. And so that, that well. changes the way you think about the world. And so anyway, that's you could do that for virtually every book yeah. in the New Testament following that same, even a structural pattern. It goes way beyond quoting and referencing right down to they're imitating um, the 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 right. narrative of the Old Testament. And of course, the book of Revelation does that in an apocalyptic form symbolically, but they're absolutely, uh, John's absolutely doing that from the, the beginning image of Jesus is designed to make you think of Nebuchadnezzar's statue dream. And it just runs right through to the end until you're back in the Garden of Eden, practically in Revelation 21 and 22. So good. Did you want to add something to that, Pete? Well, no, I just, I mean, I, I just love hearing Ed, Ed go through all that. And it's, to me, when you, when you recognize that when people try to say the New Testament, and the Old Testament are so apart from each other, when you begin to look at how, for example, the prophets read Moses, how the prophets read the Torah, they ironically, when they are repeating the patterns they see in the Torah, they read it the same way the apostles do. So the great tension is not between the New Testament and the Old Testament. The great tension is not even between the, the, the prophets and the writings and the Torah. What, what is the great tension? It's between how scholars have often taught us to read Moses' book and how the apostles and the prophets, and the, in other words, how the Bible teaches us how to read it. And this becomes important because biblical authors had no idea what a smartphone was going to be. Yeah. Absolutely not. Yeah. They did not know. They did not care. They, but they knew something. And what they knew is that every generation of every kind of person in every language will have the same problem that they faced, man's death and God's presence. Right. And the time that Israel had at Mount Sinai becomes that paradigm where you deal with God and man coming together. And there's no hope that we're going to be able to bring uh, humanity into God's presence on our own, mm. but there's hope that somebody is coming who will. And that's what I, uh, you know, uh, it's just so great to see how it fits together. I can remember the first time I heard a sermon on Isaiah 53. It's really Isaiah 52, 13 to Isaiah 53, 12. And for those who don't know, it's, you know, 
uh, Isaiah lived 700 years before Jesus, and he describes uh, not only what happened on the cross, but he describes why it happened on the cross and what it creates in a very theological way. That, uh, I would argue one of the most direct theological explanations of the cross in the Bible, apart yep. from some of the epistles. Yep. I, I do admit the epistles are a little bit more uh, theological. Uh, but, but, but they rely very heavily because, on Isaiah. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and they do. They do. And the God, and, and when you read, I can remember as a new believer, I would read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I, like I told you, I was a failed screenwriter. And I was like, man, there's just so much drama they could have put in there in that death moment. And, and I'm thinking like a Russell Crowe movie or something, but they don't do that. And I, I remember the first time I was reading those synoptic gospels in particular, I was like, shouldn't there be more said that the son of God just died? Mm. Right. And the reason why it's written that way is not because they're trying to be anticlimactic or trying to to make it as, as something little, they're saying, you have Isaiah. Mm. Isaiah just told you what this means. And so this is what I think what, what Ed has said is so helpful that both the Old Testament and New Testament kind of shine lights on each other. Yeah. And the more you spend time in each, that's why we love our job together, because we work at two places together. We, we have our kind of areas, but I get to listen to him teach all the time, and he has to put up with not me teaching. And, and the end result is I'm like, oh, I never thought of that that way. Yeah. And I want believers to have that joy. Oh, it's so I fun. want a group. Yeah. I want a group of believers to be excited and just sit down and read the Bible together and, uh, and just say, did you see this? Yeah. Um, and I think that's where God is, is, is really pleased when his people start doing things like that. And it's so cool because you can read the same passage a thousand times and then still like be like, I never noticed this before. Or, you know, there's just some something new is revealed or, you know, a connection is made or. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've you know, I've read those passages in, in Isaiah before and it wasn't till I was studying them this year in BSF where I was, you know, really digging into them where I had I'd never even noticed like the detail, the level of detail of the prophecy down to, I mean, I think the verse is something like, you know, he was buried on a criminal's cross, like next to a criminal and then like, or, or uh, crucified on a criminal's cross. And, and uh, you know, he's buried in a, a rich man's tomb. Like, I mean, it's like little details that you're just like, wait a second, I'd never noticed yeah. that before, like down, you know, to a T. And it's just, it's, it's amazing. And then when you start to make those connections and it can be frustrating when then you're reading, you know, in the, the new Testament, you're sometimes in a gospel and you're just like, wait, I have questions about this. Like I always think about the the part for me that when I get to heaven, which I probably won't care at this point, but I, every time I read it, I'm like, I love how Matthew just drops this bomb and then just moves on and doesn't say anything else about it when uh, it talks about like when Jesus is crucified and then it just says like and then the the they were there were many that were raised from the dead and then they're just like walking around and then it just like moves on and it doesn't say anything else and I'm like wait what wait and so like was there just like a bunch of zombies walking around like were people like. <laughs> I have so many questions and we will never know the answer to them. And I, people can, you know, wax poetic all day long about, oh, well, we, this is what we think. And the reality is nobody knows. Nobody really knows what, what that is. And um, but that's why the Bible is so fun and it's interesting and it's amazing. And it's um, it's it's people that say that scripture is boring. I'm like, you've never read it because like it is fascinating. Right. There's drama and there's intrigue and there's questions. Um, but at the end of the day, what we are called to do is we are called to go back to this book over and over and over again. And we're called to read it and to question and to wrestle. And I think we see that so often in, in both the Old and New Testament with the writers. They are 
wrestling with God and they're asking him questions. And, and, and our God is not a God who is afraid of our questions. Our God is not a God who's afraid of us wrestling with him and going, why, how long Lord, uh, there is so much evidence and, and precedent for that. And somebody said this to me, uh, back at the beginning of the year, and they said, you cannot not be close or you cannot uh, not touch someone you are wrestling with. And so if you are wrestling with God, you are physically close to him and you are you are touching him. And so it is okay to wrestle with things in the scriptures that we don't understand or that don't make sense. Um, we're not supposed to. <laughs> and that's hard for a lot of people. And for a lot of people, I think that's where there, there can be hangups for people when it comes to the Bible where they just think, well, I can't, you know, if I can't understand it all, then clearly it's not for me or, or something like that. Right. Um, so that kind of leads to my next question. And this is a pretty loaded question. And m- we might not even have a whole time for a, a whole complete answer. But I would love because this is the biggest thing that especially people in my life that I I love and are dear friends with who are who are not believers. And and the biggest thing I say is that they say is, well, the Bible's unreliable. And it's it's it was just written by a bunch of dudes and we can't trust or believe it. I obviously have my answer to that, but I would really love to hear the answer from two scholars of the Bible of how do you answer that for people who are skeptical and say, well, it's just a flawed, it's not, it's, you know, it's, it's just not something we should really like take seriously. It's not the inerrant word of God. Like, how do you answer that? Honestly, it it, it really does depend on who you're talking to and how the conversation got started. There's a couple of, a couple of ways you can go. Um, some people, for example, have very particular and sometimes meticulous questions about very specific things, and you can work to answer those. Right. right? So um, it's very commonly held by some um, that, you know, for example, there's is there confusion over what day of the week Jesus was crucified on? Is it the day of the preparation of the Passover, which would be Thursday or the day of Passover, which is Friday? And if someone were to say, well, I think the Bible may be I think one of the Gospels may have an error here then you would handle that by just simply tackling the problem and trying to figure out what answers are possible and then what answers and then from that pool what answers are most plausible mm. um and at the very least if you can argue um that a there is a satisfactory way to harmonize these that doesn't force you to do some kind of weird gymnastics um th- then you're and, and which, which I would say, I haven't run into any problem yet that doesn't have a fairly straightforward possible solution, at least. Right. Right. But once you get there, then then you then you really realize the nature of the question. Um, and that is, does your conversation partner at this point consider the scripture to be innocent until proven guilty or guilty until proven innocent? Uh, in other words, if the person's if the demand is. And unless we can achieve certainty on one particular reading of this, then I will, then I think none of it deserves a fair hearing. Right. You're not going to get too far there. I, mm. I don't know that that's necessarily an intellectually honest position to hold. No, I get um, it. Because it certainly is not how we treat other ancient works. Mm-hmm. And so religious or otherwise. I would also, so that, that's kind of one piece of it. The other piece of it is, and this is a thing that I see with my students sometimes, and that is there there can be and i'm going to use the word bias here i don't i don't mean it disparagingly because we all have our biases but there there may be on the part of the person asking the question just a kind of 
secularizing or anti-supernatural bias. Mm. In, in other words, if a person begins with the with a confident assertion that God does not exist, then you're going to have a pretty difficult time demonstrating the reliability of the New Testament to them. I think we can probably all agree that if God does not exist, then the, the New Testament is not true. Right. Um, but I also think that if if you if your conversation partner is willing to have an open mind, and by open mind, I mean they, they are at the position where they will say God's existence is a real possibility, then I think the claims that the New Testament makes about God in that context are not unreasonable. Right. Um, they're they're not they're not the kinds of things where you would scratch your head and say, why would anybody on earth say that about God? Mm. And so that and and then we get into a question of, well, if we are going to make claims about God, then how do we what qualifies as credible evidence for God? And that's where New Testament guys get into the question of the resurrection of Jesus and the things that Jesus said and did. Um, and so there's this sort of that that avenue as well. The, the other thing, and this is what I actually see mostly from my students that object. Their objections are mostly once you get past some of the con- the front end of the conversation, the objections are mostly moral, mm. and the objections usually go something like, "I refuse to believe in a God who would do say whatever X, Y, or Z it is." Right? Mm-hmm. Pick any hot button issue of the day, and but what's at the core of that is an assumption, uh, maybe an unstated assumption, that there is no possibility that a God would exist who disagrees with me on this moral issue. Mm. And I think that's probably a flawed approach as well. In fact, I think what we would find is that um, if if there really is a God, and I believe that there is, if God really does exist, and we would expect that we would find ourselves disagreeing with him on a great many things, mm-hmm. and, and in every disagreement, he would be right, and we would be wrong as the creator. And so, so I guess when I'm talking to somebody, somebody's asking me that question, my first goal is to sort of try to diagnose, right? Um, do, do, are, are, is this a match? Is this alleged discrepancies in the Gospels that we're having a conversation about? Do we really need to just talk about the the uh, the plausibility of the existence of God, um, or is there really some issue with your understanding of morality and Christianity's understanding of morality that have caused you to say Christianity can't be true? Because if Christianity is true, then in this area, my entire life is wrong, and I'm unwilling to concede that. Mm. And so, and you don't have to talk long with people. People are usually be pretty honest um, when you have those conversations and you can get to that point. I had a conversation with a very famous uh, New Testament professor's graduate assistant um, one time, and uh, we were having this conversation over email and because we had a bunch of uh, students from UNC that were coming to our church. And anyway, and so the he was basically arguing, well, look at all of these alleged discrepancies in the gospels. And I said, okay, well, let's, let's see if we can shorthand this discussion. Um, if I were to concede to you that everywhere the Gospels appear to contradict one another, if I just conceded that one of the Gospel writers got that detail wrong, would you then, on the other hand, concede that everywhere that the Gospel writers paint a unanimous picture of the story, that the Gospels are telling the truth? And the email came back within just minutes. No. And the answer is because that it's, you can argue what day of the week Jesus got crucified on, and you can argue about how um, Judas died, and you can argue about a number of things. But the yeah. reality is, is the Gospels paint a unanimous picture that Jesus was the divine Son of God, come to earth, who lived a perfect life, preached and taught about the kingdom of God, was crucified by the Romans with the help of the Jews on the third day, rose from the dead, died a death for sin, rose from the dead, and commanded his disciples to go into the world and preach the good news to anybody who will stand still long enough to listen. And so that's... When I when I'm asked that question, that's that's generally the approach that I take. Textual criticism is my specialty, and so I love it when students have questions about 
how do we know that the manuscripts have been transmitted to us reliably? Um, and I can just talk. They, they know not to even ask without bringing a lunch at this point. And so they just well, avoid me on that I'm gonna, question. I'm going to drive that to Charleston because but... I would love to ask that question. Just hear your answer, because like I said, I I nerd out about this stuff all day long. So <laughs> well, I'll, I'll give it, you yeah. the, the, the super short yeah. version is the um, the hands. The New Testament is hands down. Uh, the most widely represented and well-preserved ancient text on planet Earth. Yeah. Um, and right. the and the number two, which is probably at this point, is probably the Iliad. Homer's Iliad is mm -hmm. probably number two. And it's it's not even a close second. I mean, we're talking about that difference in thousands of manuscripts, provenance of you know, 50 years. I mean, it's a it's a there's a lot a lot can go into that. But yeah, right. it's um if you're going to argue that the New Testament is wrong, the approach that the manuscripts all got corrupted and we don't know what it said is that's that's not the argument you want to take because you're going to lose that one. You're going to lose that one every single time. Yeah. Yeah. We certainly have the manuscript evidence we need for the new and 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 I would add for the old for that. But I would also add one other element, which is the way the Bible's been designed, um, the way that it works, not just in terms of its message that fits together, but even in just terms how the manuscripts have have passed over time. You didn't have a one person come up and say, well, this is the one we're going to use and we're going to burn all the others. That did happen with another religious book, which I won't name, but the Bible didn't do that. Instead, you've got these competing factions, right? So you've got the synagogue and the various parts of the church all wrestling over the Old Testament. No one group is going to be able to change it without the others going, hey, you can't do that, right? right. Now, are there honest debates between the groups about certain things. Yeah, of course. Totally. But you can't have an old and you can't talk reasonably about ancient manuscripts and texts if your category is they should all have Xerox copies. I guess I have dated myself there. Uh, <laughs> my students don't know what a Xerox is. I know what it is. Um, I know what it is. Okay. <laughs> but I mean it but but it so we often have these really I don't want to say stupid expectations, but really we kind of do. I mean it's yeah. Most humanity has not had Xeroxes and digital screens and and the ability to cut and paste. Um, so it, it's it's an it, it's an absolute miracle that we have the Bible the way that we do, so that yeah. God gets the glory. No person gets it, and we can have great confidence in it. And you can have confidence when people ask you uh, about why you trust the Bible. You not only have your own story, you have plenty of resources that can line up the kinds of things that that Ed was talking about. Yeah. And most of the time, I'm going to agree with Ed strongly here, but most people have an issue with the Bible, but have an issue with something they don't want to give up. Mm. They have an issue with uh, either a sense of morality or sometimes it's because a Christian, excuse me, just lost a speaker there. Uh, a Christian has, has done something terrible to them. Yeah. And they blame the Bible for that, uh, which uh, obviously you wouldn't hold that standard uh, to other things. So the answer, therefore, is not just information. It's a relationship thing. Yeah. And so often being able willing to listen to people to not feel like you have to answer everything right away um, and, and really just over time by living out the very Bible you believe in, you become a living testimony to just how powerful the Bible is, despite the differences between you and that other person. Yeah. Oh, so good. Oh, man, I can lose. I love it. This is the stuff I can talk about all day long. Um, well, we are running out of time. And I like I said, I could have you guys on for I could probably ask at least 700 more questions. And then we could do episodes on each of those. Um, but for uh, for the listeners, I will have the information in the show notes for how you can get Bible 101, a crash course in scripture. And like I said, at the beginning, I just think this is such a phenomenal 
resource um, and the way that you guys have laid it all out. And I even love things like, you know, when you're talking about, you know, like, you know, what I was referencing kind of in when the fall of Solomon, and I love how you're, you even talk about like seeing Solomon as a flawed person, like how, you know, how are we to look at these people? And how are we to look at these stories? And how are we to see these things um, in the grand you know, narrative, um, and, and helping people get that, um, that foundation of biblical literacy, because like you said at the beginning, it really is an issue of biblical illiteracy. And it's, it's been so interesting to me how many, and like, I careful not to go off on a tangent on this, but how many people I've had conversations with who have been in church their entire life. And, and there's things that they've just never read. And I'm like, wait, you've never like, you what? How do you not know? You know, and I, and I, and I don't say that in like a, in a demeaning way or anything like that, but I'm just like, wow, there is, there's not been enough of an emphasis on biblical literacy that I think that there should be. Um, and, and we need to get to a point where we have a foundation of, of apologetics, why we believe what we believe, um, and really, just seeing God's complete picture and not being know-it-alls and not saying like, we are experts in this. I am by no means an expert in this. Um, I'm learning every single day. Um, but wrestling with God, like we said, asking questions, going to the scriptures and saying, Hey, I, I wonder about this, or I don't understand this and just going to the source and, 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 and asking. And, and I think your book just does such a beautiful job of creating a resource and a starting point. It's almost like if this is the starting line and heaven is the finish line, um, you know, and the Bible is the the road along the way, you know what I mean? Um, then this is such a great starting point. So thank you for your uh, obedience in uh, saying yes to the people who asked you to write it um, and, uh, and for your work on it. Well, thank you very well, thank much. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. As we are finishing up here, I'm going to ask just a couple of final questions before we go. Um, and well, I guess first, how can people best connect with you if they're if they have questions, if they want to read more of your work or um, anything like that? Uh, well, for me, uh, the best way, if anybody has questions, I'm happy to field those. Email is the simplest way for us to start a conversation. You can go to our uh, the university's website. Uh, I'm we're, I'm e gravely at csuniv.edu. I don't have any social media, so I'm kind of a curmudgeon in that regard. But <laughs> it's uh, cool. It's cool. E- email email. You know, I'm, I'm firmly 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 ensconced in 1997. So uh, email like is the best way to get a hold of me. Or if you're in the area, come visit our church. I'd be happy to have a cup of coffee with you. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, via the church and the university, those are the main ways to get hold of both of us. Um, and you know, we you know, I'm p link at csuniv.edu. But yeah, we 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 greatly um, at Crossroads Community Church, which is the church we're at, we're always open to uh, CSU and to the church to make sure that we're living out and talking about the scriptures. So we would love to have those conversations. Uh, you can always enroll as a student and and pay full price tuition at Charleston <laughs> Southern. That is one. That's probably the best way to be honest to really get the heartbeat of of, of Peter Lincoln Ed Gravely. Wouldn't you say? Agreed, hundred <laughs> percent. Okay. <laughs> oh, I love it. No love manipulation it. there at all in that answer. I just, no. you know, just trying to speak from my heart. Totally fine. Totally fine. Um, all right. <laughs> well, my first question is, uh, what is the last thing that made you guys just laugh? Like, what is the thing that just make has made you laugh recently? 
So I am my um, my wife is an English professor here, and uh, my daughter loves literature. She's an eighteen year old, and she's been reading through some of the uh, the major Pulitzer winners. And uh, I am reading The Sympathizer uh, by Professor Wynn. It was I think it was the Pulitzer winner in two thousand and eighteen, and it's dark, but it has some hilarious moments in it. And I laughed so hard last night that I woke my wife up. <laughs> So, I don't necessarily recommend that book. It's not, I wouldn't read it for the laughs, but yeah. uh, if you, it's, it's dark and a dark, darkly ironic story about the life of essentially a Vietnamese communist spy from the fall of Saigon to his uh, re-education and it's dark, but it's, it's, it's very funny. It's, wow. Uh, full, full Nothing for, says comedy like yeah. Vietnam and uh, the, the war there. I mean, I just, you know, helicopters flying by, whatever it takes. Yeah. Right? You know. it, it's what, that's why uh, I, I don't have anything surprise. quite so scholarly that made me laugh. Um, my kids were watching Nacho Libre uh, last, <laughs> last the other night. And so it's not scholarly, but you know, it's, I, you know, one of the greatest moments I have as a dad is my, my now 15 year old daughter, I think it was her 13-year-old birthday party. She chose with all of her girlfriends to watch Nacho Libre. But it wasn't just that. One of her friends is blind to go watch a movie. And so yeah. you could put on the thing where it talks. So we not only all knew the movie and were laughing at it, we were laughing at the way that the that the thing was explaining it. And so that actually was a great one too. I just, just thought of that. But we watched it again this week. Napoleon Dynamite, you know, we're, we're all about quality in my family. You know what? You are, you're my people. Now, I love to read, obviously, as, ex, you know, exhibit exhibited by the books behind me. I love to read. And my right. husband's an audiobook person. Um, I like both, but I'll, there'll be times where I'm just like laughing so hard at what I'm reading. And he's looking at me like, what are you? And I'm trying to be like, ah! You got to write this. It's so funny. Um, and then I also really love, uh, you know, Jack Black and I mean, Napoleon. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't? I mean, they're just <laughs> it's fine. We don't have to always be like scholarly. Sometimes we can just. So my family's favorite movie of all time is Airplane, you know, Airplane. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I saw that in the theater. That's airplane I, I have i can quote the movie from start to finish okay so uh it's it's a and staple stop calling me shirley stop calling me shirley um i am being serious um so yeah anyway we don't always have to be real serious and scholarly up in this place um okay and then my last question is what is the thing that in your lives just brings you the most joy teaching I know that's that sounds like a cliche no, answer, not cliche but it, at all. Yeah, it, it really does. Um, I love teaching. Uh, I love teaching at my church. I love teaching my students here. Um, it has really, in a way, it's even sort of shaped. I guess it's even shaped my career as if you don't know anything about academics. One of the quickest ways to if I'm being just particularly mercenary, one of the quickest ways to get promoted and make more money is to take on administrative roles. Um, but every time you take on an administrative role, you lose more time in the classroom. Mm. And so e even in our family, we've just sort of organized our even our financial lives around trying to live in a way that allows us to even continue to turn those things down so that I can just spend all of my time teaching. Maybe that's mm. selfish, but I, I, that's what I love. And that's the thing that consistently brings me joy is teaching. Oh, I love it. That's awesome. Yeah. And Ed is great in the classroom, great in the church. And uh, you can see his passion for teaching show up all over the place. And that's part of why I think uh, the New Testament part of Bible 101 is so amazing. Uh, I would agree with that. I mean, what I, I have no doubt that through, <laughs> through the long road that got me here, that God uh, chose to me to, to get up and teach uh, students in our church and so forth. And so there's great joy in that. But it's not just simply the teaching. It's teaching uh, with uh, – we involve my whole family. 
uh, especially in our, our ministry, not only at the church, but 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 here at CSU at Charleston Southern, because we we recognize, particularly with this generation, that they have not experienced families that are stable. Mm. Uh, families, uh, I can't tell you the number of students who don't have functional fathers who end up uh, connecting to, if not if not to me, uh, to one of my many colleagues on the on the hallway, and that's part of why we do what we do. We want to, we believe that this generation is the right generation to reach this age with the gospel. And what they need is to see that there are people who are willing to humble themselves to the point of death, even death on the cross, mm-hmm. uh, even in their calling, even in their teaching, uh, and to be present for these students and to remind them of the things that really matter. So there's great joy in that. And when you see that light bulb go off on a student, and we've had several students to go on to do rather amazing things. Uh, maybe the world wouldn't consider them amazing, but we've seen it. Um, and, and one of the nice things, because I am on Facebook and all that stuff, um, is when I see my, my students who I taught 10 years prior with their, with their families and just seeing that we had a little season with them and God is doing and still doing amazing things through them. That's, that's pretty hard to, 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 uh, to replace. That's pretty amazing. So good. Guys, thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for your knowledge and your wisdom and sharing it with the world. And uh, thanks for this conversation today. I had so much fun. Thank you so much. Had a blast. Yeah, we enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Big blessing. As I said, I love Ed and Pete so much. They are so brilliant, so smart, and I really, really loved just kind of nerding out and talking all things scripture. I love the way that they just so plainly answered some of the questions that I had, and I hope that this was helpful for you. I would love to know if there was anything that you learned. Will you let us know on social media? You can find me at Still Being Molly or at Can I Laugh Pod on Instagram. And would you head on over to whatever podcast listening app you use, and would you click the subscribe or follow button and leave us a review, which really does help the show to get in front of more eyes and ears. Thank you so much for listening each week. Thank you for your support. Thank you to the team at Third Wheel Media for producing this show. And for you, I hope something this week makes you laugh till you cry. See you next week. Bye.